Joining me today is a leader, a follower, a reader, a writer, a speaker, a listener, a student, a teacher, Jocko Willink. Welcome to the Rubin Report. How was that? I took that right out of the bio. That's good. That's right my, out of the Twitter bio. That's my Twitter bio. Yeah. Yeah. That's my Twitter bio. You're a little bit of everything. That actually is a pretty good explanation of you. It actually, it actually is a pretty good explanation to me. I think I cover those multiple dichotomies fairly well. Yeah. That would probably explain why you've written roughly 37,000 books, right? How, how many books have you written? I mean, I normally only put one book on the table. We put four here. So I've written, so far I've written three adult books yeah. and three kids books. I've got another kids book coming out in the spring and I've got another adult book coming out going head to head with Jordan Peterson in January of 2020. Oh, so, oh. Yeah. I probably will be on tour with him for that book. Right that on. means right that we're going to be in competition. Okay, we'll bring it. Uh oh. All right, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> no, okay, it's, so it's nice to uh, to not actually have to compete with with y'all. Yeah. Well, to, do you do you feel like you're in competition with anyone? It's, that's an interesting place to start off. Well, that's I guess there's a dichotomy there too because I don't feel like I'm in competition with anyone, and I feel like I'm in competition with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's just sort of you know in my nature to just compete. But no, I mean in this world that I'm in right now, I don't really feel like I'm competing with anyone. I feel like I'm just kind of doing what I do, talking about what I like to talk about, writing about what I like to write about, and hanging out with cool people most of the time. Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. All right, well, I think 99% of my audience knows who you are, knows a lot about you, but for the people that don't, and by the way, I should say, right before we start, I was saying, we have been trying to coordinate this for about 27 years, <laughs> right? I mean, a long time, which is kind of funny. I mean, it, it really says, it's like, well, we're two people that are, that are busy, and yeah. it was hard to, hard to really make this happen. But for the people that know nothing about you, tell me a little bit about your history. I was born and raised in a small New England town. I was a rebellious kid. My best way to rebel as a kid coming from a small New England town was to join the military. So I joined the military after high school. I spent 20 years in the military. And when I retired from the military, I started taking the things that I had learned from the military and teaching them to civilian companies and civilian leaders. And eventually that turned into a book and a podcast and all this other stuff. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about what you were like that made you want to go into the military. What was that re rebellious kid or whatever that yeah, was? Yeah, you know, I just grew up in a, in a little New England town and there was a lot of hippies and just kind of kids like that running around and smoking pot and whatever. And I really wasn't into that. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of kids when they rebel as kids, cause all kids rebel, a lot of kids rebel by drinking or they do drugs or whatever they're gonna do. And I went in the other direction and was like into hardcore music and eventually said, oh yeah, I'm just gonna join the military because that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah. It's funny, when you talk about it, it almost sounds like you're slightly dismissing it, but you had a, you had a pretty good storied career as a Navy SEAL. Yeah, no, I, I grew up in the SEAL teams. I went right in the Navy, right in the SEAL teams, and that's where I spent my, my whole adult life. And it was an incredible experience, worked with a bunch of awesome people, and got to do things that I had dreamed about doing since I was a little kid. What, what should we know about like, the life of a Navy SEAL that you don't get in the movies? Or, or however else we just sort of imagine these lives to be? I would say the biggest thing to remember is just that, that people in the SEAL teams and people in the military in general, they're people, they're just normal people. They go home, they got wives, they got kids, they're trying to live a normal life and then their job, 
requires them to do things that aren't very normal. And so they, you know, for me, I kind of learned to compartmentalize what I was doing in the military. And when I'd come home, and I, was, I tell this to police officers and firefighters and military guys today, don't, when you get home, don't bring your uniform home. Don't wear your uniform home. Like physically change your, take your uniform off, leave it at work, put on your, your civilian clothes and you go home and be a civilian. When yeah. You're home. How, how hard is that though? Once you're sort of in that locked mindset, which obviously has so much to do with the things that you write about and why your message actually is, is working and helping people. Lots of things scare us, but the worst fear is probably a home invasion. I don't want anyone in my house who's not invited. You can stop fear right at your front door with Simply Safe, an exceptional home security company that knows it feels good to fear less. Lots of things scare us, but the worst fear is probably a home invasion. I don't want anyone in my house who's not invited. You can stop fear right at the front door with Simply Safe, an exceptional home security company that knows it feels good to fear less. Simply Safe is an award-winning 24/7 protection that protects your home through it all. Blizzards, blackouts, and burglars. Simply Safe has won awards from all the tech experts who count. The Verge calls it the best home security, and it's won Reader's Choice from PC Magazine. Simply Safe is a two-time winner of CNET Editor's Choice and a Wirecutter Top Pick. Simply Safe has no contract, no hidden fees, and no gotchas. And they always keep prices fair and honest. Thanks to Simply Safe, fear has no place in a place like home. Feel safer today. Try Simply Safe with free shipping and free returns. You'll get a 60-day risk-free trial too. Order now and have your home protected within a week. Go to simplysafe.com/ruben to get started today. That's simplysafe.com/ruben. Be sure to go there now and let them know we sent you simplysafe.com/ruben. And now back to the show. You say how hard is it? Oh, it can be hard. It can be hard. Uh, you know, cuz you've got one life that you're living where decisions are really consequential and then you've got your regular life that you're living and things aren't that they aren't as consequential you know I, I had a situation where I was at work and there was a lot of stuff going on at work they were they were redeploying people to Afghanistan there was big decisions that were being made at work and I remember I came home from work one day and like I said try to try to leave my work at work but I'm sitting there thinking about how all this stuff is going to unfold and my wife you know I got home and my wife goes oh, I can't believe this and I was like what happened is, is everything okay and she says you know the no it's not okay the the Disney on ice is the same night as the, <laughs> some other events for the kids and I'm yeah. just thinking hey if that's if that's the biggest worries my wife has then that's a positive thing then life's pretty good. Yeah, life's pretty good. Yeah, so how quickly did you realize that you wanted to sort of bring these ideas about personal responsibility and sort of owning your life and all that into sort of that world, the world where Disney on ice matters and the rest of it? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I was about six months from retiring. I had a friend that was the CEO of a big company and he said, I want you to come and talk to my executives about combat leadership. And I said, hey, sure, you know, sounds, sounds cool. So I went and did it, and when I got, and I don't think he really knew what to expect, you know, because I look like a knuckle dragger, and I, I'm at least a good portion, I actually am a knuckle dragger. And so he bring me in to talk, and I, I thought, I think he was maybe thinking I'd tell some cool war stories, and that'd be, that'd be great. But I actually started talking about how you lead. And when I got done, he came up to me and said, I want you to do this for every division that I have in my company. And I said, well, you know, I'm retiring. And he said, well, 
I'll give you money. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> so I started working with all the different divisionals and at one of those division meetings, the CEO of the parent company was there. And when I got done, he came up to me and said, I want you to come and talk to all my CEOs for all these companies that I own. And he owned like 45 or 50 companies. So I went and did that. And when I went and talked to those companies, of course, then a bunch of those CEOs came up to me and said, hey, I want you to come and talk to my company. So that's kind of the, the way that it started. And it didn't take me very long at all. I mean, it, it actually was the very first company, that first guy that I talked to, when they started, when that group started telling me about the problems they were having, I was sitting there thinking to myself, well, I saw these problems in SEAL platoons when I was training SEAL platoons. It's, it's the same thing, it's leadership. Yeah, were, were you surprised that the big successful businesses were having such a leadership crisis? I was surprised for about five minutes. And then I realized that these are all human beings these are the same human beings that are in a SEAL platoon, in an army company, and in a business. And they're all, they all have the same idiosyncrasies, they have, they have the same egos, the same personalities. You can see it all. And when you've seen it all over and over again, it becomes pretty evident, pretty clear when you're looking at it. And the last job that I had in the SEAL teams I was training, I was running the SEAL training for the West Coast SEAL teams. And this isn't the training where, where you see like the guys carrying the boats on their heads and carrying logs around and doing a bunch of push-ups and stuff. The training that I ran was the training where SEALs actually learn to go into combat and fight the enemy. And this is where we really start focusing on combat leadership. And so in this training that I ran, we got to take SEAL platoons and put them through really tough training scenarios, very realistic training scenarios, over and over and over again. So every night I'd basically be putting a new SEAL platoon through another training scenario, which the next night it would be another SEAL platoon going through the same training scenario, and then the next night it would be another SEAL platoon going through the same training scenario. So you take these different SEAL platoons, and what's different about a SEAL platoon? What's different about a SEAL platoon is really just boils down to the leadership, because you've got 16 SEALs in a SEAL platoon. The, the guys are basically the same. Sure, there's, some, there's a bell curve, there's some top-end performers, there's some low-end performers, there's a bunch of guys in the middle. So the real variation on their performance was based almost 100% on their, on their leadership. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was 100% on their leadership. Hmm. And so I got to see this and I got to watch these leadership scenarios unfold over and over again and see what leadership things worked and what didn't work. And, and so by the time I, I left that job and entered the civilian sector, I'd watch some random team of leaders inside of an organization and I'd say to myself, oh, their strategic message isn't getting down to the frontline troops. They need to communicate this better. Or, oh, their departments aren't working together. They need to cover and move for each other. Or their mission is way too complex and that no one has any idea what they're actually supposed to be doing, so they need to simplify this. Or the, this senior leader is making all the decisions and therefore everything's moving really slow and nothing's happening at a good rate of speed, so they need to use decentralized command. And it was just so obvious when I started. How much of leadership in general do you think is innate versus learned? Obviously you're teaching people the learned part, but there has to be some element that's innate, right? Yeah, there, there absolutely is. And there's the, the analogy that I give, and I don't play video games, but I've right. seen it, but on video games there's, you have a character in a video game and you'll have a certain level of intelligence and a certain level of strength and a certain level of agility, and those levels are what you get and then you work with them. Well, it's the same thing for a leader, and there's different there's different characteristics that you get that are good for leadership, right? If you're someone that's really articulate, that's a great thing to have to be a good leader because you want the human beings that you're talking to to understand what you're actually saying. So, and different people are naturally more articulate than other people. Mm -hmm. It's good to be able to look at complex problems and be able to simplify them, right? That's a, that's a very powerful tool to have a, a really complex 
thing to solve and be able to look at it and say, okay, simplify it and then simplify it not only for yourself so you can decide what to do, but simplify it for your team so they understand what to do. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a characteristic that some people have. The, the one that I bring up a lot because it's very obvious is, is being loud. Because if you're in a leadership position, you need to be able to make people hear you. Yeah. And some people are born with a very loud voice. Mm-hmm. I was luckily born with a very loud voice and it's inherited from my genes, right? And my kids inherited. My kids are all, can be very loud, which is sometimes problematic in the yeah. house. <laughs> but if you can't bark a command so that people can hear you in a machine gun fight, no one's gonna be able to do what you ask them to do. Yeah. So there's these different characteristics. and you can improve upon them. So if you're not very articulate, you can read and you can write and you can speak and you can become more articulate. If you are not very good at simplifying problems, you can start looking at complex problems and thinking about how you can simplify them and you can get better at that. The being loud part is, there's definitely a genetic aspect to that. So sure, you can learn to project your voice more, but Some people aren't very loud, they're just born that way. Mm -hmm. And so what does a person do in that situation? Well, what a person does in that situation is when they have to give an order, they tell one of the loud mouths in their platoon to tell everyone to get over in this other building now, and that loud mouth will pass the word. And so what you do as a leader is you find members for your team that can complement your weaknesses. So there are parts that you can improve, and there are parts that you can't improve, and if you, the only real impediment to improving is someone that doesn't have the humility to say, you know what, I I think I could work on being more articulate. Or, you know what, I think I could work on solving problems and making them more simple. Or, you know what, I'm not that loud. And instead of saying, you know what, that's not a good way to lead. Instead I say, you know what, I'm not that loud, but Billy over here is loud, so I'm gonna let him put the word out when it needs to get put out. But if you don't have the humility to do that, you won't improve as a leader. Have you found those people that even if you lay out what the right you know, skills are that they have to work on or where their blind spots are, et cetera, et cetera, that they just can't, whether it's ego or whatever else, that they just can't, that you just, certain people you just can't get through to. Absolutely. It's a, it's a horrible situation to be in. And in the SEAL teams, those guys will get fired. In the civilian sector, generally, those guys get fired because, I mean, you, you go into a company and you've got a CEO that is not listening to anyone, up or down the chain, not listening to the board, not listening to his subordinates. How is he going to improve? He's not going to. And by the way, why does he need to improve? He needs to improve because his company isn't doing well. So, but this person might think, hey, you know, I'm great. I don't, I'm not gonna learn anything from anybody. I'm just gonna keep doing it my way. And that guy's not gonna stay in that job because they don't have the humility to say, you know what? I'm probably doing some things wrong. That's why we're not making money. And so I need to change some of the things that I'm doing so that we can make money. But if you don't have that attitude and you're not humble, yeah, you'll end up getting fired. So conversely, have you seen people that basically had none of the skills that have been able to overcome it just through perseverance, that just innately don't have the leadership traits, that don't have, you know, they don't speak loud, they aren't clear, they can't make decisions, but just out of sheer sort of force of will? There's, there's all these little aspects that you have, you can improve upon, right? Now, you, uh, you're not gonna take, I'm not gonna lie to you and say you can take somebody that has no aptitude for leadership and they're going to turn into a great leader. That, that's probably not going to happen. But you can take someone that has minimal aptitude for leadership and they can improve the areas where they need to improve. They can complement themselves with a team that 
can cover for the areas where they're weak and they can end up doing a great job in a leadership position for sure. Yeah, so handing some of this stuff off, people don't think of that in certain ways when it comes to leaders, like they have to do everything or know everything or something, but actually handing some of this stuff off is, is good. Delegating actually is good. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like for instance, big shocker, I don't really like doing paperwork a lot. You, you know what <laughs> really, I mean? Really, you really yeah. me as a paperwork I, I, know, I, know, I know it might seem <laughs> odd, but I always had guys that worked for me, I'd figure out that guy that was really good at administrative stuff, and there you go, guess what he's gonna do? A bunch of administrative stuff, and that's great. And so whatever areas of weakness you have, have some, you know, get a member of your team, recruit someone, bring someone on board that can actually make these things happen and it'll work out great. Yeah, are you kind of surprised how much we need uh, leadership sort of in society right now that we seem to have like a complete dearth of leadership? I mean, you mentioned Jordan Peterson before, when I see the message that he's bringing to these people, it's really about getting yourself together, which is the most, I mean, it's very consistent with your message. Yeah. But, but, there's, but the people that are coming are sort of looking for a leader to say that, that we just don't have, we seemingly don't have good leaders right now. Do, do you think that's a fair estimation? Well, well, we do have good leaders. There's plenty of good leaders out there. And I see them all the time in the business world. I still work with the military and there's great leaders inside the military. There's great leaders inside the business world, for sure. There's also always a lack of leadership. And I mean, I, you know, on my podcast, I cover, I cover books about war, generally first person accounts, and there's a lack of leadership back then and there's good mm -hmm. leaders. So I don't know if it's gotten any better or worse, but the fact of the matter is that leadership is, is the hardest thing in the world as far as I know. It's, it's the hardest thing. You know, people used to ask me when I, when I first got out of the military, what was the most complex you know, operation that you would plan? I'm like, planning operations isn't that big of a deal. Like here's a bad guy. Here's the assets that we have. Here's what we're gonna do to go take them out. I mean, this is stuff that generally, it's, it's not that hard to do, but the hard part is, is leading human beings. And so why does it seem like there's, that we need better leadership? Because you always need better leadership and because leadership is so hard to actually do properly. Yeah, do you think we need some sort of mandatory military service to get some of this through to, to young people? I think military service is great for people. I know it was, it was great for me and it, it worked out really well for me, but I really don't believe in, in mandatory service because I really don't believe that it's good for government to tell people what you need to do. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know, I, I, I'm, I don't really support that, but I definitely support <laughs> and encourage everyone to go in the reserves. You know, go, join the join the Army or the Marine Corps, or the Navy, Air Force reserves, where you go away for you know six weeks or eight weeks, and you kind of learn what the military is about, and then you do one weekend a month and two weeks in the summertime for you know indefinitely. So I think I have a pretty good handle on your politics, but do you, do you even have a, a label that kind of works for you politically? Uh, I don't know, you, you, I don't know. I don't know what label, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I think it'd be pretty hard to label. Well, if you were just answer. sort of summing up sort of your political beliefs, what, what would you say? I think that, I guess a, a, a broad statement would be, I don't think that the government is the solution to our problems. Yeah, I think that generally unleashing individuals to try and make things happen is the best way for things to work. It's it's consistent with decentralized command that I talk talk about in the, in the first book that I wrote with my my brother Leif is you can't control everything. You know, centralized decision making does not work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work on the battlefield. It doesn't work in business. It doesn't work with governments. So that's you know broadly speaking, yeah, I don't think that the government should control what individuals are doing, as, as little as possible. Do there have to be some rules and regulations in place? Absolutely. But 
the framework should be as loose as possible. Just like if I'm running a SEAL platoon, it's not every man for himself. Mm -hmm. It's here's our standard operating procedures, here's the areas where we commit to disciplined process, but then once you understand those and you know those, you're allowed to operate freely within those guidelines to execute the mission. And that's what works, that's what makes not just the SEAL teams, that's what makes any good military unit good, and that's what makes good businesses good. Good businesses aren't good because someone is micromanaging every single decision. Good businesses are good because people broadly understand the direction they're heading, they understand that, and they're allowed to move forward as they see fit. The most important part of any business is your people, but how do you find the right people? ZipRecruiter.com slash Ruben. Finding qualified candidates is challenging, right? You don't have time to sift through applications and resumes. Let ZipRecruiter.com slash Ruben help. ZipRecruiter sends your job openings to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. We used it here here at the Rubin Report to look for additional staff and met some great candidates in the process. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Rubin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-U-B-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash Rubin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Are you shocked when you say something like that, which obviously I agree with 100%. I mean, all I talk about here is personal responsibility over and over. That that doesn't seem to sort of be the the kind of flavor of the day at the moment that with the, this if you listen to mainstream media it's sort of more well the government should give you this and we should take from some give to others that there's a more feeling of you you are owed something rather than you got to get something you're asking if i'm surprised by that I, yeah because I, it, because the 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 way you're laying it out it's obvious it, you know what i mean yeah. like I mean that in the best sense. It's obvious, like, yeah, it's your life. Go go do something that has value and, and create something. I guess something. the real easy answer is, no, I'm not surprised by it at all. Because if I come here and offer you something for free, why would you not want it? Why would you not want to take it? If I say, hey, you can have this house for free, and you'd say, okay, that, that seems like a good deal to me, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, sure, I understand why people think that sounds like a good idea, because it's something for free, and they want to in their own individual world, they think, okay, I do want to take advantage of this and right. get something for free. So it doesn't surprise me at all. The, what is unfortunate is if you can't draw the line between, hey, everyone gets everything for free, and there's a price to that that somebody's going to have to pay, that's where it becomes a problem. There is some cost <laughs> hidden in there somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. So tell me what it was like when you started writing, because that must have been a whole other ball of wax. You know what it was? I was actually an English major in college, and I, I, went, I went to college halfway through my Navy career. I started off as an enlisted guy, went, went to college, and then uh, or became an officer, and then went to college eventually. So, and the reason I was an English major was because, believe it or not, when you're an officer in the military, and actually almost any job in the military, you have to write. You, you not just have to write, you have to read, you have to understand, because you have to write concept of operations documents that are gonna be pushed up the chain of command and they're gonna read through them and ask questions and, and look at the document and try and comprehend what it is that you're trying to do. You gotta write evaluations for your troops and your, your troops are getting 
promoted based on the evaluations that you write. Same with awards, you gotta write awards. Same thing with after actions reports. So if you do an operation and things don't go well, you have to be able to articulate and explain that, what happened, and then pass that word on so everyone understands. Not only that, you're, be, you're being given direction. Verbal direction, yes, of course, but you're given written direction as well. Mm -hmm. You're given mi missions in a written format, or you're given rules of engagement in a written format, written by lawyers. And I realized while I was a young enlisted guy, and then as a junior officer, what I really need to be able to do is understand hmm. and communicate well up and down the chain of command. So when I went to college, I said, yeah, I, I wanna learn English. I wanna get good at it. And so that's what I did. And so obviously I did a bunch of writing and a ton of reading when I was an, when I was an English major in college. And then when I was in the military, I was writing, you're writing all the time. And then when, when, when I got out, and I was working with these companies and, and it grew really quickly and that's why my, my buddy who was one of the platoon commanders that worked for me in the Battle of Ramadi, Leif Babin, he, he was getting out of the Navy too and I, you know, I, we start, I started to need some cover and I said, hey man, you wanna, wanna jump in and get some of this and he was all on board and then as we started doing this, people would always say, hey, do you have this stuff written down anywhere? Do you have a document you can give us? And so we eventually wrote it down and then that's how the, that's how the first book came. Yeah, can you lay out a little bit about the Battle of Ramadi? You basically, you sort of wrote the plans? The huh. person that led the Battle of Ramadi that I was in was a guy named uh, Sean McFarland who was a colonel at the time. He retired as a general, just a super smart, inc incredibly competent and, and great leader. He's a great leader. And he came in with, so I had 40 SEALs with me, right? I had 40 SEALs with me and 60 support people. Colonel McFarland had 5,600 man armored brigade that we supported and we helped and we worked together in the Battle of Ramadi. Vicious fighting, very tough battle, and really took a city that was completely controlled by the insurgents in 2005, 2006, and by early 2007, it was almost completely pacified. So it was a, it was incredible, it was incredible incredible turnaround and an incredible testament to the capability of you know the, the U.S. Armed Forces. Do you guys pay any attention to what's going on politically back home when you're halfway across the world? Yes, absolutely. You have to pay attention to what's going on politically back home, and if especially like at this time when we deployed to Ramadi, so it's two thousand five, two thousand six. This is smack dab in the middle of the <clears throat> rising negative public opinion about the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. It's also where we had our own government officials here in America that were saying, this is unwinnable, this is another Vietnam, this is a quagmire, we shouldn't be there, bring everyone home. So yeah, you, you absolutely hear those things. Yeah. And that's not good, that's not, it's not a positive thing. It's not a positive thing to have your own government officials in America saying that you cannot win. And meanwhile, you're going out on an operation. Does that, that must drive you guys crazy more than anything else. Sort of the political elite that often have no idea what's happening on the ground that are just spouting off stuff. For sure, for sure. Yeah. But as I said, it's, you listen to it, but you can only pay some, so much attention to it. There's so much other things to focus on. I mean, you think about it a little bit, mm -hmm. but you're not caught up in the 24 hour news cycle like, you know, like people, can tend to do here in America because you're working and you're getting back from one operation, you're preparing for another operation. I got guys in the field, I got another element in the field, I'm going in the field, it's, you don't have time to be sitting around, hey, I wonder what 
this politician is saying about what we're doing. How much of, of leadership that you brought to it was just about managing stress for your guys, just making sure that they were actually okay in the midst of the chaos? You, absolutely, you have to do some of that. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act between all kinds, there's all kinds of things that you're trying to juggle at the same time. And managing stress on the guys is definitely one of them. And in a situation where you're getting guys wounded and your guys are getting killed, that stress meter can get pegged out pretty quick. So you have to manage it. You have to do it to the best of your ability. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard because you, the war is going to keep going and you are going to keep, you, you have work that needs to continue. So the stress is going to build up on, on the troops. And it's different for every guy. You know, the, the frontline SEAL or soldier or Marine, they're worried about getting blown up. They're worried about getting shot and killed. They're worried about their friends getting shot and killed. They're worried about their friends getting blown up. When you're in charge of a bunch of guys, you're, in, you're worried about all those guys and, and that happening to them. You're worried about if we make a mistake, if we do something wrong, if we cause some massive collateral damage that has a negative strategic impact. Like that's, you have all those stresses. And you know, to control stress, what do you do? That's like, you look at the things you can control and the things you can't control. Yeah. You focus on the things you can control, and the things that you can't control, you do your best to mitigate, and then you don't worry about them, because they'll drive you crazy. Yeah, what, what do you make of sort of where we're at now, having lived through the Iraq war? Like, was it the right thing to do? Should we have done things differently? Should we have not just announced we were leaving one day? The, the, whole, the whole thing. The, the whole thing is that hindsight is twenty twenty, and any normal human being can look back at the American history as a whole and find out all the mistakes that we've made, which are, you know, infinite, right? Yeah. We make an infinite number of mistakes and we do the best to try and repair those once they've taken place. The, so for me to look at it from that angle, it's like, okay, yeah, there's all kinds of mistakes we make as a country and we have made as a country and we will make as a country. Mm -hmm. But the best way for me to kind of rationalize, or not even rationalize, because I don't think it needs rationalization, but I, when I look at it from a granular level, which is, which is very straightforward, we went into a city, the city of Ramadi, that was being controlled by s sick insurgents, the most sadistic, evil, subhuman people that you can imagine. They were raping, torturing, skinning people alive, murdering whole families, beheading people. And when we went in there, and again, I'm not talking about we as this small group of SEALs, I'm talking about when this massive force of US coalition and, and Iraqi forces went into that city and liberated those people from the torturous and sadistic control of those insurgents, the people of Ramadi were overjoyed. And they would cheer when we killed insurgents and they would tell us where insurgents were and it was a beautiful transition to watch and it didn't really take place until after we left, but after we left we saw this, just, it was peaceful, it was literally peaceful. It went from a complete war zone to a, to a peaceful city and where they were they had markets open the street again. They had kids going to school. They had girls' schools now. You know, the, <laughs> there, there was in the, in the city of Ramadi, yeah. there was schools for girls. Huh. And, and this was just unheard of while the insurgents were there trying to, you know, uh, punish the, the, the populace with their 
psychotic brand of, of Al-Qaeda Islam, right? And, and the, the people of Ramadi did not want that at all. And so from that perspective, it's like I go to sleep every night. The only regret that I have is that we couldn't do more because guess what? After America did pull out, ISIS took Ramadi. And when they got in Ramadi and we had friends that were there, ISIS went and found the families that had worked with coalition forces prevalently and they murdered about 500 families. So that sickens my heart. That, that's horrible. So when you hear that politically, it sort of gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that you know, when they say, all right, well, we're gonna get out this day. Like, it's, oh, it's gotta be over, we gotta end this thing, we gotta get out this day. And you know that that's counter to what you've learned sort of on the ground. That's just gotta be the worst thing you could hear. Yeah, one of the worst. Even if you don't want a conflict to continue. First of all, there's no one that wants conflict less yeah. than the people that have to go and fight it, right? When, when we sign up for a war, it's my friends. And, and not just my friends, but it's the military that's gonna go out and die. When, when we sign up, oh, there's a conflict we need to take care of. So yes, uh, we don't want to go to war. If you go to war, you go to war to win. In the situation that happened in Iraq, we pulled out completely. There was, not, there was no one that had fought in Iraq that thought, oh, good call, that's a great call. There, there was embers of the insurgency. The insurgency had been, had been all but crushed, but it had not been completely extinguished. And there mm -hmm. were embers of insurgents that were there. And as soon as we pulled out, they started growing, and that's what turned into ISIS. Yeah, so that's, that's around 2008-ish, right? Something yeah. like that? Yeah. So then what, what is sort of a more sensible way of leaving something? So you, you, you do a certain amount of cleanup, let's say, and you right, free some right. of these cities, and, and good things have happened, but you don't want to be there forever. How, how do you manage that? And, and with the stresses of just the political machinations and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that you have to look at every situation that you're in, and you have to say, okay, well, what can we do here? How, how, how much can we draw down our troops? And it's not, it's not a certain amount of time. It's not a certain amount of troops. You, you have to look at each situation and do an assessment and figure out the best way to move forward. And guess what? You won't, you won't be perfect. And, and that's why an absolute thing like, hey, we're, just gonna, we're not going to do this anymore is, is a risky move. So what do you think is going So like when Obama did that, what, what do you think his military leaders, who I'm sure you probably respect some of them or, or maybe even know some of them, what do you think they were telling him? That, because it's so counter to what you're laying out here. I'm sure they told him this is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. There's, like I said, there's no one that had spent time on the ground in Iraq that said, oh, you know what? We're good, let's leave. Because it was still a very, a very fragile situation. Yeah. And it looked good, it looked good on paper, but you have to give the, the, the civilian populace enough time to really kind of figure out how to live this way. Because it's a new way to live. Yeah. You're, you're oppressed under Saddam, then you're oppressed under some uh, insurgency, and to, to have that be lifted, and then say, okay, we look around, it's gonna take some time to figure out how we're gonna do this. And we needed to provide them with enough security and stabilization that they could, and it's not like we were working hard. The, the last few, uh, Leif, uh, who wrote the book, books with me, he deployed in 2010, I wanna say. They had, so while I was in Ramadi, there was a guy wounded or killed almost every day 
for the six months we were there. There was a guy wounded or killed almost every day in Ramadi. Sometimes two, sometimes five, sometimes seven, sometimes mm. one. When Leif went back to Al-Ambar province, so Al-Ambar province, the, the, the province that Ramadi is the capital of, in his six-month deployment, there was one fatality for all of coalition forces, wow. and it was from a vehicle rollover. Wow. So it, was, it wasn't like we were over there gutting it out anymore with the insurgents. The insurgents had been really, really suppressed, and we just needed to give the, the locals enough time to kind of put things together and start to move forward and become stable, politically stable, economically stable. And that is what we should have done. Do you think it's our moral responsibility to, to do actions like this? If, if we can help people that are living in these horrible situations that, it, that morally, and we, I mean we, the United States, have to do it? I think that we have to weigh the morality of taking care of other people and taking care of our own people, right? So when you, and this is a very difficult decision to make, and something I've talked about on my podcast was the genocide in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. So the genocide in Rwanda happened, and there was 800,000 Tutsis that were killed by Hutus in 100 days. So this is more efficient than Hitler was able to pull it off. And by the way, most of the killing was done, 98% of the killing was done, with machetes, so this was just crazy. When that was happening, I was sitting off the coast with a, in a SEAL platoon, on a ship, with a bunch of Marines, a bunch of Navy power, and we could have gone in there and done something, and we didn't. And I would say that the primary reason that we didn't is because a year earlier, Black Hawk Down had happened, and mm -hmm. we lost a bunch of service members in Somalia, and so I was like, mm, you know what, we, we don't really wanna get involved in that again. And so that's the, what we have to weigh, is we have to weigh what are we willing to lose in order to save someone else, and then what do we benefit from saving those people, and is that benefit worth the, the expense in money and lives that we invest into it. And sure, some of that benefit is feeling like we can look ourselves in the mirror as a country. That's part of the benefit. Part of the benefit, sure, there's economic benefit, sure, there's political benefit, but part of the benefit is, can we look in the mirror and say, you know what, we, almost a million people were butchered in this country and we didn't do anything about it. That's something that we have to contend with and that's why these decisions are hard to make and, and when you do make these commitments as a country, then you need to commit mm -hmm. and not go half-hearted into these efforts. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna risk American lives, you better be doing it for a reason that, is, that merits putting our, our men and women at risk. What do you make of the catch-22 that America's in with this dilemma all the time, where it's like, if we don't do anything, no one does it, but then every time we do do something, there's always the unintended consequences and how long do we have to be there and everything else. It's a really, it's a, it's a strange bargain that America's sort of put in, or, or put itself in. Well, yeah, then this is, this is, we started off this conversation talking about leadership and why leadership is so hard. Leadership is hard because decisions, it's not two plus two equals four. It's, it's, it's not that at all. No. There's this insane amount of calculus and, and secondary and tertiary things that happen after you make a move that you think is good. This is what makes it so hard. And that's why, you know, for America, as the leader of the free world, guess what? Being in that leadership position, it's a hard position to be in. And, and guess what, just like a leader, just like when I was a leader, when I was a leader of a SEAL platoon, when I was a leader of a SEAL task unit, did I do everything perfect? 
Absolutely not. I made mistakes. I made mistakes. I made mistakes where people died. And that is the burden of leadership that you bear. And so as a nation, we're in the same situation. The things that we do, we are not going to do things perfectly. We have to do them with the best intent, which I believe we do, but things aren't going to go perfectly. And guess what? Some people are going to be mad when you make those mistakes. Some people are going to be mad even when you do things right. They're going to look at you and say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. That was the wrong thing to do. Okay, here's what we weighed out. And you've got to be willing to take those criticisms. Leadership, leadership is a very hard thing. So what do you make of the guy in the White House now related to leadership? Because even if we were just to look at Iraq, so it's like, all right, George W. Bush got us into Iraq. You can argue whether that was good or bad or whatever. Obama got us out, and as you just laid out, maybe the way we got out was probably not the right way to do it. It doesn't seem that, from at least what I could tell, that Trump is looking to get us into extra wars or anything like that. Well, it certainly doesn't seem like he's looking to get us into any extra wars. I, I would agree with that. And again, there's, I don't believe that, hey, we're going to be an isolationist nation and we're not going to play on the world stage. I don't think that's the best thing. The other end of the spectrum is, hey, we're going to go fight and police up the world. That's not the right thing either. The right thing is to look at each situation as it unfolds in the world and make, try and make the best decisions you can as a leader at that time. And, and again, these are not easy decisions to make. These are, these are decisions that, that you make them and they still unfold. The day after you make a decision, the minute after you make a decision, things unfold that you didn't expect, that you didn't anticipate, and yet you made a decision. So now you've got to make another decision and, and it's, it's a challenge. What, what do you make of him just as a leader? If we were looking at the, gra- the way you would grade a leader, how would you look at Trump? From a leadership perspective? Yeah. I think Trump is an interesting characteristic of some really broad extremes, right? So he does things that I say, oh, good move. And then literally 20 minutes later, (laughs) 20 minutes later, I'll be thinking to myself, what, 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 how can you even think that this is a, a decent thing to do, right? And, and by that, I mean, you know, jumping out on Twitter and criticizing some kind of person, some, some individual human being. Celebrity or yeah, something. Some celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing? Why, why, why are you doing that? Uh, you know, so I think the guy, who was it that just, the, 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 the testimony that just took place? Michael Cohen. Yeah. So Michael Cohen gets up and says that Trump is a bad character. And I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, this is, this to me is not a surprise. I mean, I don't think this is a big surprise to anyone. This is not, this is a guy that he's not the guy that you want your daughter to marry. At least, at least I don't want my daughters to marry someone like that. Okay. So what's his character like? Not the one that we want to model ourselves after. Do we want, do we expect, do we want a leader to be someone that we can look up to and model ourselves after? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We want to look at our, look at our leader and say, wow, I really respect that person and I want to follow them and I'm going to emulate their, their actions and their behavior. That's, that's absolutely, that's what a leader is. Yeah. So does Trump fall short on that? Oh yes, he does. <laughs> uh, oh yes, he does. So it's a, it's a strange world that we live in that that guy versus Hillary Clinton, who he ran against, neither one of those people are people that, that you look at and say, 
Seems like a seems like a character I want to emulate. That's what I'm looking towards. I want to be that person. I want to I want to move in that direction. You know, from the 300 plus million people in America, those are the two candidates that we put forward. What is wrong with us? Yeah, uh, that's a problem. Well, what is wrong with us? What, what do you think the answer to that is? Is that just the way the political system set up, or is that the media, or is that us? Is it? I is think it, it has all to those? do with the political system for sure. I think it has to do with the the way that the, the way that media is and the way celebrity is that the the name is able to carry itself the character the, the self branding that goes out i think drives so much of this that we're not really we're not really assessing what type of leader this person is going to be we're assessing how popular they are so for a guy that talks about discipline a lot when you see trump tweeting is that what's going on in your head you're like man this is just a discipline thing like you get some of these things right and if you could just discipline yourself in another way. Yeah, and I, I would say that I thought when, when Trump won the election, and I was just as surprised as anyone, when Trump won the election, I thought, okay, well, you know what, at least now we're gonna get to see him step up and act presidential and all that. <laughs> what did it take, 15 minutes before he looked at it and said, okay, I guess, okay, it's gonna take him a little bit longer than I thought, right. but, but it hasn't changed. And it, and it was the same thing, you'd see Hillary Clinton do the same types of things, where you're do, doing behavior that you'd say to yourself, why are you doing that? You don't do that. You don't do those kind of things. You don't behave that way. And so I think you just have to, you know, we have to kind of gut through. I hope that this is a, a situation where this is a, a point, a pivot point for the country where we'll start looking around and saying, Okay, we, we don't really want to do that. Uh -huh. We want to look for the right person that's going to do this job correctly, that's going to represent the country well. And Are you worried that we don't get out of this? What, whatever this thing is that everyone can sort of feel and no one knows exactly what, what it is. Just this, this endless bickering and how it seems like social media is making us all hate each other. And yeah. that, we don't, that we don't have yeah. real, at least at the political level, leaders to look up to if, if you're looking for self-discipline and morality and whatever else. You know, when people... I had people write when Trump got elected, you know, people would just fly off the handle with me, right? And and I don't really talk about politics very often. And, and the reason that I don't talk about politics very often is because, well, because from a leadership perspective, if I'm trying to get you to do something, the worst way to lead is for me to bark at you and tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. That's not good leadership. So I don't do that with people that I communicate with. I don't yeah. say, hey, He's, he's horrible and she's great, or she's horrible and he's great. I don't, I don't say that. I just, I just give examples from history about the way good leaders behave and the way bad leaders behave and let people make their own decisions. But somebody was hitting me up, hey, you know, you need to, you need to speak out. And you know, I said, okay, well, here's my speech. America is stronger than one man. America is stronger than one man. America is stronger than any one individual politician. We're we're a massive, you know, a massive ship, and a massive ship takes a long time to turn. And the checks and balances that are in place inside the government, which are sometimes really, really bureaucratic and mm -hmm. and disappointing and aggravating because it's so hard to change things, they're they're hard to change for a reason. So, am I worried that you know, this is that this tipping point won't come? No, it'll come eventually, because. Eventually, free people, the free people of America won't allow for things to go so far in one direction or so far in the other direction. We, we won't allow it. Yeah. Now, what makes it hard to reach that tipping point is because America, it's so, 
it's so beautiful in America, right? There's, there's, it's such a stress-free life, right? It's just, there's, you know, we were in the middle of two wars, and that didn't affect the average American in any way whatsoever. Not even the oil prices, like nothing affected them. They were still driving their SUV to Starbucks and ordering a latte with zero impact. And that was when we were fighting two mm-hmm. wars and le- losing people every day on those battlefields. It was no factor. So what happens in America is we, we're, we pretty much don't care as long as we're comfortable. But if things start to get uncomfortable, that's when I think the, the real tipping point will come and there'll be a backlash one way or the other. Yeah, all right, I wanna shift off some of the war stuff, but very quickly, so since you mentioned the two wars, the one that nobody ever talks about or even thinks about is Afghanistan, which mm-hmm. I think now, it's the, it's the longest war we've ever been in, right? I mean, this is the longest war. It's still ongoing now. It seems to me that nobody knows really why we're there or why this is so ongoing. What, what the hell should we be doing or thinking about? Or I mean, it's, it's never discussed, period. Yeah, and it's interesting because this is something when, when Trump if you remember, Trump said, hey, what's the plan? And he got a bunch of pushback and people were saying, oh, who's he to ask him? And I was like, well, he's the president. And so, yeah, you need some kind of a plan. You need some kind of a goal. And I, I do think that needs clear definition in Afghanistan of what it is we're trying to make happen. What does that look like? I, you know, from my perspective, when you get into these countries where you're trying to build something or trying to, you're not trying to build it yourself, you're trying to allow them to be free. That's what you're really trying to make happen. You're trying to allow these countries to be free. They're not gonna be the same as us. That's one thing that, that I'm fairly confident about. There's different cultures that are going to adopt freedom and democracy in a different way, and you can't impose what we think it should be like on other cultures because it doesn't match up perfectly. But it can match up pretty well. And individual human beings in these countries, you know what they want? They want a job. They want to build a little business. They want to be able to feed their kids. They want their kids to have a better opportunity than they do. That's what, when you can, when you can provide some of that, that will start to take hold. And when you provide some of it, other people in that country will look at it and goes, hmm, that, that seems to be a, a pretty good, deal over there. I I would like to try that too. And pretty soon you can get freedom and democracy, the attitude of it to, to expand. And so it takes a long time. You know, the average counterinsurgency is seven years, but they can take really, really long time. But in my opinion, and really through the history of the world, eventually in my mind, eventually and through history, Eventually, the free individual will rise to the top and, and rule, and, and they will rule themselves. And so you have to give that opportunity for individual freedom. You, they have to have the opportunity to grow and to take root, take good solid root, and to grow and be strong enough that when tyranny comes along, it can't just wipe it out. Because tyranny can wipe out the yeah. individuals without, I mean, we've seen that in history too. Tyranny can wipe out and destroy individual freedoms and individual, really individual aspirations. They can just be mopped up and destroyed by tyr- tyranny. So you have to give freedom and individual freedom, not just the time to sprout up a little bit. You gotta give it the time to take root because once people have tasted 
true freedom and true opportunity, they don't give it up. And that's what I think you have to do. You have to stay somewhere long enough that people understand what true freedom is. They recognize that it's theirs to protect and it has to be rooted strong enough that it can't be washed away by tyranny. So then going all the way back, so what, what are we doing in Afghanistan? I mean, do you sense that that's actually happening there? Because it's, it's something like 14 years or something. Yeah, it's, you know. and it's one of these things where we oscillate too much on what it is that we're trying to accomplish and what we're willing to sacrifice to accomplish it. Because, you know, from an isolationist perspective, from a, from a okay, let's just take, of Ameri- take care of America, oh, Let's take the Taliban. Oh, you want to live in like a, a world? You want your country to be, you know, back in the Stone Age, and that's how you want to live? Okay, cool. We'll be over here doing our thing. Like that's that's the, yeah. That's that's a, that's a a legitimate plan. Hey, you guys want to live in the Stone Age? Cool. We'll be over here with iPhones. Th- that's fine. We don't care. But then it's like okay, but we're gonna breed terrorists. But okay, we'll we'll come in occasionally and knock those guys out. How's that? Okay, we we could do that. And that's, if that's the plan, okay, let that be the plan. But if we're going to stay there, if we're going to try and get freedom to take root, which I believe is the best thing to do because I do believe that we do have some level of moral obligation to try and support individual freedom throughout the world. That's, that's to me, that's pretty self-evident. Does that mean that we have to jump into everywhere that there's oppression? No, it doesn't, and we can't. And it also means that inside those countries, the human beings inside those countries also has a moral obligation to rise up and fight on their own. And that was nice about going back to Iraq was, you know, I've, I've got friends that, that fought in, in Mosul as they took Mosul back, but those were Iraqi troops mm-hmm. that were moving from building to building, taking massive casualties. As a matter of fact, one of my friends that was there said there was a, in the beginning of the Mosul campaign, the Americans were looking at each other saying, hey, these guys are taking so many casualties, we're gonna run out of Iraqi soldiers. Like, they're all gonna die. And the Iraqi soldiers continued to go forward and they continued to fight and they ended up you know, getting the upper hand. And so when they say that, that we were greeted as liberators, it actually is true. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh my God. I mean, in Mosul? Oh, it was, and again, I wasn't there and I never fought in Afghanistan either, but the guys coming back from Mosul, the people were absolutely just, they were, they were, they were being, I mean, everything, enslaved, beheaded, tortured, everything. It was absolutely, it was heinous. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was a heinous war crime across the board. So, yeah, absolutely. So, we're, all right, we've done a lot sort of out of our borders here, but it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, in the, we can be in the middle of all of these wars, and yet we can still get a latte, and we can still pay no attention to it and live our good lives. Do you think there's a risk to our freedom here because of that? that we've got it so freaking good that we almost don't know what freedom is anymore? Do I think it's an actual risk? No, Hmm. no, I don't. I think that the minute things, the minute you start really talking about taking away the personal freedoms of Americans, there will be real problems. Okay, is that a risk? Sure, that could, that could be a risk. I see that as a real small chance that things get bad enough where, where mass groups of Americans say, oh yeah, we're not, we're, not, we're, not, we're not doing that. You just crossed the line. You know, 
the, the American Revolution, right? Oh, you want to raise tea taxes? No, actually, we're going to fight a war against you. You're not raising the tea taxes, right? That's, could it get to that point here? Sure, but you got to remember what's going to be sacrificed. And, you know, that's one of the coolest things about the American Revolution is the people that fought it were the people that actually had the most mm-hmm. to lose, the people that stood up. So it would take, it would take a lot, but I'm, I, I don't, I think it would take a lot to get there. I think it would take a lot to get there. And if it gets there, that'll be sad. It'll be a sad day. But I believe that freedom would prevail. All right, let's, let's shift all together to sort of what you're doing now. So podcasting, writing, all that stuff, having these kind of conversations. Um, it's kind of cool that, that people are paying attention to this stuff now, isn't it? We're, when you started doing the podcast, was that just sort of you were just going to throw it out there and see what happens and, and see if, oh, wow, people might want to listen to long-form conversation? Yeah, I did a podcast with Tim Ferriss. And when he pressed stop on the recorder, he said, you should do your own podcast. And then I, Joe Rogan heard it and invited yep. me on. So it was on Joe Rogan's podcast. In the middle of that podcast, Joe Rogan said, you should have your own podcast. So <laughs> when Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan tell you to have a podcast. To have a podcast. You listen. Yeah. So I did. And for me, it's a, it's a, it's a great medium. It, I always, when I grew up, I grew up listening to radio shows. And so I always liked listening to radio. And that's essentially what it is, is radio without commercials. And I get to talk about things that I'm interested in. And, and again, you know, the, the advice, some of the advice that I got when I started off was like, oh, you need to have guests all the time. People get tired of you. Don't, don't talk about these dark, you know, don't talk about these dark, violent things. You can't talk about war all the time and you need to keep them shorter and all this. And I didn't listen to anybody. <laughs> and my podcasts are really long. Some of them are extremely heavy and dark and talk about some of the worst. In fact, I think we've covered most of the really the worst things that have unfolded on the planet. And they're long and I, and I don't have a lot of guests. You know, I do have guests, but I don't have a lot of guests. So the interesting thing is, yes, shockingly enough, People, people listen to it, and the, the connection and the feedback is, is awesome. Yeah, how do you think it's changed you by going to all those dark places and talking about all this stuff and, and expressing your ideas and all that? Well, I've gotten, I've, I've, gotten a lot, I've gotten a lot of experience out of it. The experience that I get out of it is, I, so I do a lot of book, I cover a lot of historical books, like I said, first person mm-hmm. accounts of war and atrocity and that. When I first started the podcast, I said, well, you know, I probably got, I'll probably do five because I got like five books that really had an impact on me. So I'll cover those books and then oh, whatever, that'll probably be it. And then I said, you know, there was one more book that I really want to throw in this pile. And then there was another one. And it didn't take but, you know, f- five or six more podcasts where I said, I'm never going to be able to do the pod- enough podcasts to cover the things that I want to talk about. And that's the way it's been. So I've read, I, I read basically a book a week for the last three years. And, you know, I, I, I finished doing all the books that I, that I actually <laughs> you had already read yeah. in, like a, in like, I don't know. So you're like, I better write some then. Yeah, well, I'd already written <laughs> my first book when the podcast came out. Uh-huh. So, so how has it changed me? And the other, the other great thing is I get to interact with all these people. And... People come up, and I know they do this to you too. People come up to me and they say, "I know, I feel like, and I know it's weird, but I feel like you know me." And I'm like, "Yeah, you do know me because how I am on the podcast is yeah. actually how I am. That's just me." 
and and then I tell them that I actually know them too because if they've listened to me for 500 hours, yeah. you haven't spent 500 hours listening to <laughs> to your wife, you know what I mean? It's like, that's just not happening. Yeah. So I do know them. And then they gave great feedback and I learn a lot from, from the books that I read, from the people that I have had on and from the feedback that I get and, hey, read this book, look at this aspect. So it's made me, it's made me learn a lot. So from first person war books and all your life experience, how do we end up with, we got two of them here, I think. Yeah. Children's books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right here. Well, so there's the dragon. Yeah, yeah, Peterson. Mike and the dragon. So yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't write. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't give Jordan any credit for it. But <laughs> you know, it's called Mike and the Dragons, Jordan. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I got four kids, and as I started continuing to hear back from people that were listening to what I was saying. And, and the, what I'd hear a lot is, I wish I had this when I was a kid. I wish I had this when I was a kid. And of course my answer would be like, I do too. I wish I had the lessons from extreme ownership when I was a kid. I wish I had the lessons from the discipline equals freedom field manual when I was a kid. Absolutely. <laughs> and growing up or, or watching my own children grow up, I just knew that the things that I tried to impart on them I figured I could put into stories where I could impart those values onto little kids and make their lives easier and better. And that's it. So I started writing them and it was surprising at, at the, the response. The response has been, you know, people love them. And, you know, one of my favorite letters I've gotten is I got this letter from this guy who, you know, he's saying I'm 37 years old and I was drinking and I was overweight and I was doing, hadn't been promoted and I got all these problems going on in his life. And he, he said, then I read your book and I said, okay, I'm gonna wake up a little bit early. Okay, I'm gonna start working out. Okay, I'm gonna stop complaining. Okay, and he went through his whole letter and how now he had lost 52 pounds and he had been promoted and he had stopped drinking and all this stuff. And then the last line said, the book I read was The Way of the Warrior Kid, which is you know aimed at kids. But the lessons in there are completely universal and apply to your whole life. So. It's been, it's been great, and I get a lot of social media posts of little kids studying flashcards, because you know, the, the premise of the warrior kid story is that there's a little kid who's, he can't do any pull-ups, he doesn't know how to swim, he's getting picked on by the school bully, Kenny Williamson, and he doesn't know his times tables. And the last day of school ends, and he's all sad, and then he remembers that his Uncle Jake is coming to stay with him for the summer, and his Uncle Jake was in the SEAL teams. So his Uncle Jake comes to stay and the first day he says, hey, you know, what do you want to do tomorrow? You want to do something? You want to go for a swim? And the kid goes, I don't know how to swim and I don't know how to, goes, you know, I don't know my time was getting picked on. So the uncle says, look, these aren't problems. We can solve all these. Gets him into jujitsu classes, teach him how to swim, teaches him how to study using flashcards and other memorization techniques and teaches him how to eat right, teaches him to work out and the kid turns, turns around. And so that's that one. Mikey and the Dragons is about facing your dragons. And little kid that's scared of everything and he finds a book under his bed and it's, he opens it up quickly and there's a bunch of pictures in it that look scary of dragons and fire. And so he doesn't want to read it, but there's also a picture in there of a little kid that looks confident and like he knows what he's doing. So he says, all right, you know what? I'm gonna read this book. And then you turn the page in this book and you are now looking at the cover of this next book, which is called The Dragon Prince. And that's the story of a kingdom where the king had died 
and now there was no one to defend the kingdom from the dragons except for this little seven-year-old prince. And so he's scared. He goes to get his father's sword and his father's shield opens up this big war chest. And in there, he, he pulls out the sword and it's too heavy for him. And he pulls out the shield and it's too heavy for him. And he's even more scared now. And then he sees a note at the bottom of the war chest and he pulls it out and it's a note from his father, the king, who explains to him what he needs to do to stand up and face the dragons. And the story continues on. So I enjoy storytelling. Yeah, I well, I sense, I sense an animated movie and I guess the last thing I got for you is what do you do to relax? After yeah. all this, after all the work and everything else and it's a pretty intense life that you're living, yeah. I'm guessing you're gonna say working out, but give me something else. Well, work, does that include jujitsu? Uh, yeah, well, that's still within the working out thing, but whatever works for I you, mean, man. You know, I surf, I do jujitsu, I hang out with my kids, play guitar, and yeah, I find this stuff relaxing. It's enjoyable for me to, to write. It's enjoyable for me to talk to people about leadership and go out with my company, Echelon Front, and teach and align executives on leadership and watch them be able to turn their company around or bring their company to the next level based 100% on leadership, which is what I tell them. I say, look, you've got this problem, you've got that problem, you've got another problem. Every problem that you have inside your organization is a leadership problem. I guess that means you slayed the dragon and you're, you're doing the right thing in life. It's been a pleasure, man. I'm Appreciate glad we it. finally were able to do this. And for more on Jocko, you can follow him on Twitter at Jocko Willink.